be thankful it showed because plan B was I was going to have to sing that. So I'm really glad. And so are you. You just don't know that. I couldn't help myself. I love that scene. I love that scene. And like Teve, we may wish at times we had a little more than we have, right? We wonder what it would be like to even be just a little bitty rich. Truth be told, when the question is asked, would you like to be rich? Very few would say, nah, doesn't interest me. One person quipped, they say it's better to be poor and happy than rich and miserable. But couldn't something be worked out such as being moderately wealthy and just a little moody? (laughs) Well, before we envy the rich and wish we were a rich man or wish we were a rich woman, listen to what James has to say in this section. For in this section that was just read for us, he had some words for the rich. And if you're like me, you may wonder, why is it that James seems to just be going off on the wealthy? Why these six verses about rich people who seemingly were were non-believers? I mean, the vast majority of people that James is writing to were Christians who were poor, oppressed, unable to do business in the marketplace, lost their homes, and whose lives were hard. I mean, was there any benefit to the believers hearing this letter read? And when we come to this section in these these six verses of James 5, yes, I believe there is great benefit to those believers there who were poor listening to these words. Because I see in these words not only a warning to the rich, but an encouragement to all. These six verses are words of encouragement. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. You fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and, and murdered innocent men. And you go, words of encouragement? I'm not seeing it. I mean, where's the encouragement in that? Likely that wasn't your first thought as George was reading the passage. But for the persecuted Christians, the scattered believers who were being oppressed by the rich, who had to face injustices on a daily basis to whom James is writing, this would indeed put courage into their souls. I mean, have you been mistreated? Have you been ripped off? Do the injustices in the courts and and neglect of the poor and the helpless and the the abuses and misuses of power and money kind of get under your skin? Well, James, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, in essence, says, don't lose heart. God is a God of justice and he will make all things right. James wants to remind you, church, that the justice of God will be played out. Now, that's not to say that we should rejoice in the people under the wrath of God, but a faith in action is one that is confident in the justice of God. One that is confident in the justice of God. 
Now, why is this so important as we live out our faith? And that's what James is all about. Why is this so important to believe that, that God is a God of justice and, and all justice will be played out? Why is that so important? Because if we lose confidence and trust in God's justice, we're going to start to rail on the system or take matters into our own hands. So these words here are as relevant to us today as when written to the early church. Let God take care of that. Relax. Be confident in the Lord who's a God of justice. Now, not only is there encouragement to be found in these verses, but also a personal challenge. You see, James is not issuing a blanket condemnation of the wealthy. If we make this section of scripture all about what social class we are in economically, we will have missed the point. Which, by the way, Compared to most of the world, we are all in the middle class or better. Really. But the emphasis of these six verses in James 5 is not the extent of one's wealth, but rather one's attitude toward the wealth we possess. Now, if you've been with us through our time in the book of James, you know that it's all about a faith in action, a faith that is real. Is our faith real? Is your faith real? Well, to answer that, run it through a series of tests, James says. And James has already given us a bunch of tests through which to answer, which to check whether our faith is real or not. Now, I'm not going to go through each of them this morning. But the test of genuine faith before us this morning from this passage is this. What is your attitude toward money and possessions? What is my attitude toward money and possessions? That's the test. It's a test of how we view money, how we view what we have. Not too long ago, I saw a bumper sticker that read, the root of all evil is money. Not so. That is to misquote the verse in Timothy that says, the love, the love of money is the root of all evil. I came across this quote, it really stuck with me. I'm gonna share it with you. Spence said this way, it is possible to love money without having it. And it is possible to have money without loving it. It is possible to love money without having it. And it is possible to have money without loving it. And so we're confronted with with questions like, what's the pleasure of your soul? Wealth? God. Possessions? God. I mean, what are we living for? Possessions? Or Christ, what is it that satisfies your heart? Now, if I could boil it all down for us this morning, these six verses, it would be this. Don't live as if this is all there is. Live with eternity in view. Don't live as if this is all there is. Live with eternity in view. Now look with me at verse one. James chapter five, verse one. He tells the rich, verse one. Now listen. Now we saw those exact words back in chapter four, verse 13, two weeks ago. It's tended to grab their attention. He's saying it by these words. Now listen. He's saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Get this. Hold on a minute, rich people. 
Because while the rich are going about their business, figuring that all is good and that they're getting away with their actions, James calls them out to give them a little perspective. In essence, he's saying, this isn't all there is. What you see isn't the entire picture. He goes on, now listen. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now, the word weep there means to sob out loud. Sob out loud. The word wail is the idea of of shrieking or screaming. It would describe the kind of wailing that would take place when someone died or, or the reaction that might accompany intense shame or guilt. Now, as I read through these six verses, I couldn't help but think that there's a lot of noise in this section. There's a lot of noise. You have sobbing out loud here and and screaming in this one verse. Then in verse four, as we're going to see a little bit later, you have a lot of crying. James uses two different words to express the cries that go out against the dishonest rich. It's the, the cry of the unpaid wages, a loud scream. And the cry from the workers is a shout. There's a lot of noise in this section. James wants us to feel these words, to pause along the way, to take it all in. And while we may be tempted to wish we were a rich man, while we may be tempted to wish we were a rich woman, James speaks of the misery that comes to those who live their lives for the things of this world. What is the misery to which James is referring to in verse 1? Well, in some sense, it is the misery that comes with trying to find satisfaction in this life and from the things of this world. Let me say something, and it might grab you at first to even wonder if it's true or not, but I'm going to say it because I want it to have a shock value. God doesn't want you to be satisfied here. God doesn't want you to be satisfied here. I mean, we can find satisfaction in Christ while we move through this life, but we are not home yet. Scripture uses the word groaning to describe life here on this earth. God doesn't want us to be satisfied here on earth. Now, this is important whether we believe that or not. Because whether we believe that to be true or not affects how you're going to live in 2014. Because if we think we are to be satisfied in the things of this life, then we're going to act a certain way, a way that goes after the things that we think are going to satisfy us. And furthermore, when something goes wrong, we're going to shake our fists at God and complain or cry out to God, fix this because I'm dissatisfied here. Fix it, God. That's what you're supposed to do. It will affect how we approach 2014. And actually, there is something very wrong if we are satisfied with things here on this earth. For then we will not want to leave this world. The invitation goes out to all who are trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world and live as if this is it here. It won't satisfy. It will only bring misery. Back almost um, 100 years ago, 
There's a group of seven financial giants who gathered together at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Their combined wealth totaled more than the worth of the United States Treasury at that time. 25 years later, what was life like for the seven of the wealthiest people? Well, two died penniless, two ended up in prison, and three committed suicide. Such men are not to be envied. In more recent times, we know that billionaire Howard Hughes spent his last years as a sick recluse. Was he happy? J. Paul Getty was reported in the press to have made this statement. I'd give all my wealth for one, just one happy marriage. How tragic. What misery. It's been said money takes away some care, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. The trouble in the getting of it, the anxiety in the keeping of it, the temptations in the using of it, the guilt in the abusing of it, the sorrow in the losing of it, and the perplexity in the disposing of it. A writer for Forbes magazine who wasn't making any claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but from his secular perspective, he had this to say. He said, sooner or later, I expect Americans to give up their faith in the miraculous power of money. Not for any preacher's reason, he goes on to say, but because as with any other neurosis, more people will come to appreciate that the substitution of shadow for substance, of illusion for reality, results in behavior both idiotic and dangerous. He then asked this question. When will Americans wake up to the fact that money doesn't deliver what it promises? I don't know. When will we? Now listen, you rich people. You who are trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. But you know, there's even a greater misery to which James speaks, not only in the present. It's the miserable, dreadful day when Jesus returns and and they watch what they deemed important in this life go up in smoke. It's important to note that the whole backdrop of this section of Scripture here carried all the way down to verse 12. The whole backdrop of this section, and the one we're going to look at next week, uh, is the fact of Christ's return. In verse 3, he mentions the last days. and James speaks of the Lord's coming in verse 7. Verse 8, saying that the Lord's coming is near. And at the end of verse 9, James notes that the judge is standing at the door. You see, he confronts us with the reality that life is a mist, as we saw last time in the previous passage in James 4. Why is our life a mist? Because Jesus is coming. Don't live as if this is all there is. Live with eternity in view. Are we? Am I? Are we living as if this is all there is? Or are we living with eternity in view? Well, we can measure that up against what James goes on to say in the rest of this passage. There are three charges here against the rich, or better put, against those who are abusing their wealth. There are three charges against them, hoarding, withholding, and fattening yourselves, or self-indulgence. Three charges against them, hoarding, withholding, and fattening yourselves. 
So let's, let's put ourselves and, and measure ourselves and test our faith through those three charges. First of all, don't hoard money greedily, he says. Don't hoard money greedily. Follow along as I pick it up in verse 2. Why? Because your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I don't know, but that's the American dream. I mean, isn't the philosophy of this day all about storing up all you can so you'll be set for life? I had some statistics that I was going to give you about all storage sheds that we have throughout this country. And and I know there's a place for them, a very practical reason for them. But it kind of blew me away when I thought about that. We are storing a lot of stuff. Could provide other stats about how our homes are bigger so we can store more stuff. We have stuffitis. American dream. We have to watch the mindset creeping into our thinking, even as we budget, as we manage, as we save our money. See, the Bible is not against saving. It's not against providing for our needs and the needs of our family. But it does speak against the vast accumulation of wealth focused solely on perpetuating one's own comfort and pleasures. Why? Why are we storing it all? Someone said that there's no good reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. And James here speaks to the stupidity of placing too high a value on wealth. For all of that hoarding only feeds moths. It all rots away. Even gold and silver, James says, will corrode, I think, figuratively speaking. I mean, what are the things we value? The things we would run back into a burning house for if we only had a few minutes. Reminds me of the story of, a, of long ago when a great ship struck a reef and it began to sink. It was obvious that the people on the ship had only a few minutes to escape, so all their belongings had to be abandoned as they fled to their lifeboats. However, one man on the ship ran and he filled his pockets with gold from the different staterooms in the ship's safe. This took just long enough that there were no lifeboats left. So the thief put on a life jacket and he jumped overboard, happy with his new riches and his narrow escape. But as his friends who had left quickly looked on, he hit the water and plummeted to the bottom like an anchor. The weight of the gold being too much to allow him to float. How foolish. And yet greed often fills us with that which becomes our own destruction. See, the problem with hoarding is that it has no regard for God's timetable and the reality of eternity. A better perspective would be, as Jim Elliott famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Secondly, not only don't hoard it greedily. Secondly, don't withhold it deceitfully. Don't withhold it deceitfully. Notice the words in verse 4. Look, he says, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the 
Lord Almighty. Now, right here, we see two cries. There are two cries going up against these deceitful uh, employers. The wages they failed to pay are crying out against them. Now, I don't know what the picture is of that, but, but kind of in my sa- strange sense of humor, I picture their money bags that they're carrying for deposit at the bank are crying out as they're carrying them. They're screaming at them, going, ah, what are you doing? You didn't pay the wages to the, to the workmen. I mean, money was talking to them, all right. It was talking to them all the way to the bank and how they cheated others. But it wasn't only the money bags that were crying out, but also the cries of the workmen, it says. The harvesters, the one who worked a full day and who did not receive their due pay. Their cry, it says, reaches the ears of the Lord Almighty. Or literally, the Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. Or the Lord of, of angelic armies of heaven. It is a strong word used to speak of God, and that's why the NIV captures it by using the word almighty. But what this is saying, it's a beautiful picture. What this is saying, that God delights in showing off his might and power by coming to the aid of the poor. He hears their cries. See, even the legal systems established by God are subject to corruption. What should be our response to the injustices done to us? Should we fight back? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, in reference to Christ's response to the injustices aimed at him. It says of Jesus, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, now get this, 1 Peter 2, 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Cry out to God. He hears our cries. Do we have confidence that God is a God of justice? And then we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. God is a God of justice. He will make all things right. There's tremendous comfort in that. I mean, have you been ripped off? Someone said they're going to pay you and they didn't pay you? Have you been mistreated? Jesus is coming and he will make all things right. Can you trust God with that? A true story was told of a man who was brought before a judge justly accused of a dreadful crime. But through some legal technicality, the judge was obliged to discharge him. Doesn't it frustrate you? where there's a a mistrial because someone brought something to the case that was not allowed, that even though it didn't have dilly squat to do with, with the absolute guilt or innocence of the one charge, yet the case is shut down, it's all over, and the one charge is declared not guilty. Doesn't that get to you? It gets to me, I'll be honest with you. I start throwing things at the TV when I see that stuff. Well, in this case here, the judge had to dismiss the case and let the accused go. But he had this to say to the man charged with the crime. The judge turned to the man and dismissing the case, he said, I believe you're guilty and I wish to condemn you severely, but through a petty technicality, I am obliged to discharge you. I know you're guilty and so do you. 
And I want you to remember that you will someday pass before a better and wiser judge when you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. That's forgotten in our day and age. In our society that has become quite adept in cheating the system and working the system on the side of the oppressor and the guilty, listen, God will have the last word. On that day... All injustices will be dealt with. On that day, all those who thought they got away with it will have to give an account to him. On that day, what we lived for, what we spent our time and money on will come into clear focus. On that day, the weeping and the wailing and the misery will be loud as all all of us will see with clarity what it is James is calling us to recognize now. On that day, where we stored our treasures will be realized. Have you been defrauded? On that day, all wrongs will be made right. Now, the other side of this coin is I need to ask, are there any ways in which you have defrauded someone else? Have you had people uh, do a job for you and you have yet to pay them or you have delayed in paying them and you're stringing it out as long as you can? Are there any voices crying out to God because of you? Crying out because you've oppressed them with your dishonest practices and actions. Well, I need to get to the final charge of the rich And that is they were fattening themselves, living in self-indulgence. The word is don't spend it selfishly. Don't spend what God has given us selfishly. Verse five says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. He says they were living on earth in luxury. Now, now, the word that James uses here for luxury is a very interesting word. It's, the word luxury means soft or delicately. It's the idea of pampering yourself and making your life cozy and comfortable. He goes on to describe their living in self-indulgence, which literally can be translated, taking your pleasure. They were giving themselves to the pursuit of pleasure and in doing so, closed their eyes to the needs of others and and to the work of God. You see, a life of conspicuous consumption is not Christian. I need to hear that. A life of conspicuous consumption is not Christian. Even if it's packaged in Christian wrappings like the evangelist who preaches, you're the child of the king, now live like it. Which is usually just another way of saying, don't live like a pauper who has nothing. Live in prosperity for you are a child of the king. And so there is this, this, ah, this subculture of Christianity in this country anyways. doesn't fly in third world countries. There's a subculture of Christianity that is brought, bought into this health and wealth version of Christianity that is nothing more than consumerism and selfishness. Let's call it what it is. Now, I stop myself right here because I really could get on this and I'm stopping, just so you know. If there's any comfort in that. 
But for those who live that way, James calls them a bunch of cows. He does, a bunch of cows. He says, you fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. Do you get the picture? People who who gorge themselves on luxury and self-indulgence may think they are blessed by all the pleasures that feed their bellies. And like cows, they keep eating and eating and eating the food brought to them. Why? I remember seeing this cartoon of, of one cow talking to another cow. And he says, boy, the farmer must really love us to keep feeding us like this. Guess what? Why is he feeding them? He's fattening them up for the slaughterhouse. Get the picture? James goes on. He says in verse six, you've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Well, were these acts of violence to which he's referring? Well, perhaps. One commentator said it this way, though. I like this. He said, in the Jewish world, to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering them. In other words, when these workers counted on that money for food for that day, and they did not get paid for that day, it would be, uh, that day they would go without food. And to neglect the needs and defraud them would be likened to murdering them. What is our view toward what God has given us? Hoarding? Spending it selfishly? Deceiving others with it? No, don't hoard greedily, manage it wisely. Don't withhold it deceitfully, earn it honestly. Don't spend it selfishly, share it generously. Are we living as if this is all there is? Or are we living with eternity in view? Do we have an eye on God's clock? We need to be reminded of God's clock. The more we are aware of God's clock, the greater the difference to how we use God's time and money. Are we living with eternity in view? Let me ask you, how often did you think of Christ's return this past week? How often? I mean, did you think of Christ's return at all? Did you, did you, would you answer seven t- several times a day or a few times over the course of the week? Live with eternity in view. Live as if Jesus will come back by the end of 2014. I mean, what if we lived this year as if Jesus is coming back by the end of 2014? How might that change the way we live? How might that change the way we spend Wouldn't we spend our time and and wouldn't we spend our money on helping others be ready for Jesus? Wouldn't it change the way we think and the the way we pray, the way we talk, the things we fight about? What is our attitude toward what we've been given by God, toward our possessions and money? The, the, The things we weep and wail about, are they the same things that break God's heart? Are we weeping over what we wish we had? I wish I was a rich man. Why? So I can lay up treasures for myself? Or am I crying that out and and weeping over lives that are not ready for the coming of Christ, weeping over wanting to do more for the sake of others? Years ago, Steven Spielberg put out a movie Hadn't seen, I have not seen the movie. Just saw this one scene in it, a Schindler's List. 
not recommending the movie. Just telling you I got this illustration from there. It's a beautiful scene. It's based on the life of, of Oscar Schindler. Schindler was a German industrialist. Supposedly saved the lives of over 1,100 Jews during the Holocaust. By employing them in his factories and shielding their families, he prevented them from transport to the concentration camps. And in the movie, there is this devastating scene near the end where the war has ended and he's getting ready to leave the factories. He's surrounded by the men and women whose lives he has saved and and they present him with a gold ring. And And on the ring, there was this inscription that said, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And he looks at the rim, but he can't take it in. He starts to look around and he breaks down and he begins to repeat over and over again, I could have got one more out. I could have got more out. I could have got more out. He begins to to cry and say, if I had made more money, oh, I threw away so much money, he says. Breaks down some more. And he says, I didn't do enough. Guys, it's 1,100 people, generations to come. He says, I didn't do enough. I could have got one more, one more person. Loved ones, that ought to be the cry of our hearts. I'm ashamed to tell you, it isn't always the cry of my heart. I'm going about my own thing. If I were a rich man, if I only had more money, why? Why? To fatten ourselves? Or to save a life. I mean, after all, how are we using what we've been given? Because Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. How am I doing there? Am I being trustworthy in the little? Don't live as if this is all there is. Live with eternity in view. Let's be generous with what God has given us. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us on this. We're wealthy people. I am. I have plenty. Brother was just telling me this morning how it was in another part of this world and how they live day to day. They truly live day to day. They don't know if they're going to have food at the end of the day. I don't live that way. I'm all set. Show me in a personal way. Show us in a personal way. We don't want to be legalistic about this. Neither do we want to dismiss it and say this doesn't apply to me. Show me, show us what it looks like to use our wealth for others. To be rich toward you to be rich in faith and to lay up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Show me what that looks like. For my own life, do that to each one of us here, I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.